Morning, everyone. Today's first reading is from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my saviour and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. In burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. And the second reading is from Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Thank you, Jen and Nathan. And uh, may I offer my welcome as well on this bank holiday weekend. Um, it sounds quieter here, doesn't it? We've obviously got the families and the kids away at the moment. So um, adults, if you want to use the crash area, then please feel free. But we've also got some activity sheets as well. And uh, the questions are really good on there. So if you're an adult, please do feel free to take one afterwards and work on it at home. But um, if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to be in Psalm 51. So please um, have that in front of you. And I think the songs we've already started to sing this morning have helped set the tone. Because we're going to look at a, a, a really tough issue, uh, biblically speaking. It's so central, it's so important, but it is hard. It's the issue of our sin, of confession and repentance. And we heard it read there superbly by Nathan. This is David's response. So we're going to spend some time in Psalm 51 as we've looked over the last couple of weeks at different psalms and what they teach us about life God's way. Well, you can't have missed it in the news. It's hard to reconcile, isn't it? Some of those pictures that were 
in the, the news reports on Instagram of a smiling young woman out with her friends. And to reconcile those with the headlines, Britain's most prolific child killer. On Monday, 33-year-old Lucy Letby was sentenced to a whole life order for murdering seven babies and attempting to kill six others. And that was whilst she was caring for them as a neonatal nurse. She will die in prison. She's the fourth female criminal in British history to have no hope of parole. It's a shocking story. People find it hard to put into words. Even on Radio 4 this morning, there was a, a, a discussion about the use of the word evil. And there was a psychotherapist and a theologian talking about this and how do we have these categories? Her defense team argued the deaths and collapses were due to serial failures in care. In the unit, she was the victim of a system that wanted to apportion blame where it had failed. Let be refused to attend the sentencing. The prime minister described that as cowardly. He, he said he's looking into changing the law to make sure that criminals face their victims and hear firsthand of the impact of their crimes. There needs to be an accountability. You need to own what's happened. You can't get away from the guilt. And this is the, the painful thing, is Letby was uh, not admitting her guilt. Indeed, a close friend who was interviewed on the radio, she said she can't accept, she can't believe that she's done this. It's just not happened that way. The power of sin to blind us to the reality of what we are. It's written large in that massive, horrific crime. And yet it goes on every day in all the ordinary small ways that we as human beings fail each other and fail God. But in Psalm 51, we're given a celebration we're given a celebration in this prayer of what happens when God confronts and forgives horrific sin and forgives rebellious sinners. So we're going to work our way through these verses. And the first thing that we need to understand is a bit of the context. So there has been a sin that's committed. It's right there in the title. So if you can look, before you even get to verse 1, in the Hebrew, this is included in, in the verses. But you can see there, the NIV put it as italics. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So um, King David had had a, a sleepless night, a sleepless night, which explodes into a darkly catastrophic story of lust, of coercive sex, of pregnancy, of deception and murder. And the shock is that God's chosen king, the anointed King David, is at the center of it all. And we find the account that's referred to in that title in Psalm 51 in 2 Samuel 11 to 12. And you can read that a bit later if you wish. But just as a recap, David should have been with his army, but he's relaxing in Jerusalem. He's taking life easy. He's also, as I said, one sleepless night, walking around, spies out Bathsheba, the wife of one of his royal, uh, loyal army officers, Uriah, and takes her for his own selfish pleasure. 
Uriah is a loyal soldier. He's putting his men in the mission first, even though David concocts a plan to bring him back to Jerusalem for some rest and relaxation, to go home and spend some time with his wife, and so try to cover up the scandal. No. Uriah's having none of it. He shows his honor in the fact that he won't even take time off to be with the family when his men and the army are fighting for God's cause and fighting for the protection of God's people. And so to cover up the scandal of David's adultery and getting Bathsheba pregnant, David orders Uriah to the front line where he's killed. And after Bathsheba's mourned her husband, David brings her into his home. Maybe he's thinking at this point about the optics, the PR, painting the picture of the caring and benevolent king, the pregnant vulnerable widow of a loyal army officer with no means to provide for herself, no social security, is now honored as one of the king's wives. And for nine months, David carries on with life like this, covering up his sin and guilt until as the title tells us, Nathan arrives on the scene, the prophet who comes with a word from God in the form of a parable, a parable of a rich man who decides for hospitality not to use his own flock to provide a meal, but takes from a poor man his one sheep that he's looked after for the whole of its life which enrages David at the injustice. And the trap is set, as Nathan says, David, you are that man. And in confronting David with God's word, David is brought to owning his sin. And we start to see David change. He is broken by God. Now, why would God keep this story in the Bible? Why is it there? Well, quite clearly, it's there to show us how things really are. The Bible shows us people who are just like us. The Bible, uh, people who don't always do things right. Even the so-called heroes are full of faults. They are flawed people. Like us, they're sinners. They need rescuing, not only from themselves, but ultimately from God's judgment at their sin against him. We're all desperate of God's grace. And it would be easy, wouldn't it, to think that David's biggest enemy from a king's perspective was one of the surrounding nations, the the Philistines or the Ammonites that are, uh, are a constant threat. But what 2 Samuel 11 to 12 and what Psalm 51 show us is that the most powerful enemy was inside him. It's in us as well. It's that sin. And the gift of Psalm 51 is that it gives us the words to deal with our sin, to deal with our guilt as we live in God's forgiveness. You see, the greatest victory of David, as one writer put it, in in David's life, was not a victory of David's at all, but rather God's victory of grace over the sin that captivated David's heart. That's the biggest victory. And we'll never get the treasure and delight of Psalm 51 if we stand away from it saying, I'm so glad I'm not like David. Yeah, a bit like the Pharisee in Luke 18. We won't get the treasure. Of course, we haven't done the same actions as David. We haven't been that deprived, that conniving. But like him, there are times we are ruled by our self-focus, aren't there? Our desires, 
rather than God's clear commands. We make excuses. We, we justify. We cover our tracks. But Psalm 51 is a prayer for God's people to share. Moral failure, confession, personal awareness, repentance, transformation and hope. It is good news because it results in God's faithful love being seen by sending a word in season, a word that's a wake-up call, a word that brings people to their knees and to their senses. Nathan being this loving instrument to dig David out of his sin pit. And maybe today, as you've already heard those words, you're feeling weighed down with guilt. You're in a pit of your own spiritually numb, tired of covering your own tracks maybe. Maybe it just feels that the distance between you and God is is too much, it's unbearable. Well, Psalm 51 shows us that God meets us in the moments of deepest failure. He forgives. He restores. This is his costly grace. And the start of David's prayer is one of utter clarity, isn't it? Sin confessed. It's utter clarity. He's seeing himself as he is. It's a heart cry of a broken man. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. You see, David begs God to show mercy and covenant love. Notice he isn't being his own defense lawyer. He isn't coming out with a list of his best moments, his greatest works. There's no denial. No, Lord, I'm really guilty. There's no excuse making. Uh, I was tired. I've been working really hard and needed to let off steam. Uh, That person over there just pushed my buttons. How else was I to respond? There's no comparison games. Well, I'm not as bad as King Saul or those Philistines. Again, we can come up with a list of others who uh, are, are way worse than ourselves. There isn't deal-making. Okay, I admit that uh, this much was wrong, but I'll pay you back in this way, Lord, and then can we move on? None of that. David knows what he's truly like. His sin is like a whole body tattoo. It's just visible. You can't miss it. It covers him. It's all over him. Wherever he looks, it can't be ignored. Even over the several months that he's had Bathsheba in the palace, he can't get away. He describes its nuances. So look how he says, my transgressions. That word there, transgressions, that's the boundary line of God's law. He's stepped over the boundary. He's broken through it. He's pushed through the do not enter sign. My iniquity, that word iniquity is summing up the sheer wrongness, the evil of what he has done. It's, it's what um, a theologian like Augustine and others have, have described as the inward curve of our hearts, that bent towards our own desires. That's iniquity. In Adam, we're all sinful from birth. It's our nature. My sin 
This is the word that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 3.23, describing when we've fallen short of God's glory, of God's good standard. It's like the arrow that's been shot, but instead of hitting the targets, it's dived a few feet into the ground. The words here in the psalm, carefully thought and inspired by God's Spirit, these words show David understands he recognizes the depths of his sin. Not, I let myself down, or, well, I made a bad choice. He names his sin for what it is. And this is sin confessed. Here as disciples, this is where we have to unpack what we've done to see it deeply, to own it properly. And David can only come to the Lord with one appeal. We, too, can only come to the Lord with one appeal. His mercy. We will not properly confess sin unless we believe that God first loved us, even when we were his enemies. Can you see that dynamic? We need that. That's the baseline. That's the foundation. To run to his mercy because he first loved us. He sees it all. Our only ground of appeal is God's character, his faithful, unbreakable love. And that's why God is the focus of the most striking lyric in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned. Just think about that in the context of what's gone on. Wait a minute, what about Bathsheba and all she's gone through? What about Uriah and what he had to put up with and his life being taken from him? What about the people of Israel whose leader has just let them down and is covering it up? Now, whilst I don't think David denies he sinned against people around him, he rightly sees his sin first and foremost as an act of violent treason against the holiness of the Lord God. That's the orientation. It's breaking God's law. It's breaking God's love that affects the people around him. They are the casualties of that sin. And they are sinned against. But they ultimately find that place under the sin against his creator God. As God's creatures, Uriah and Bathsheba belong to the Lord. And David is accountable to God for them. For the way he has sinned against them too. But the pardon can only come from the ultimate judge and creator, the Lord God. And so, at this point, it's a reminder, a refresher to us, perhaps, if we've been walking with the Lord for many years. Do we see our sin primarily as an offense to our Heavenly Father? That's where you see the seriousness and severity of it. That he is the one we are truly accountable to. If we don't, it will be managed in different ways. Something either to ignore or reconcile, repay people. If we're always moving on the horizontal, the seriousness will never capture us. Don't try to sugarcoat it. Don't deny it. Don't justify it. As the pastor Paul Tripp put it, it's only when you are grieved by your sin and acknowledge that this sin is heart deep. When you do that, your confession will be followed by the turning of repentance. 
Friends, this is serious news. This is not something we can do on our own. We need God's Spirit to lead us in this sort of prayer, in this sort of self-awareness and self-knowledge. And the great news is that that work of the Spirit leads to a deep cry for cleansing, which is what we see next, is that cleansing is needed. Now, I wonder if I could just ask, I wonder if George and George and Eva want to come and just help me with a few things. I've got some visual aids that um, if you want to help me, that would be grand. Now, on the chair, guys, I've just got a few bits and pieces that I uh, carry around with me on a daily basis. No, there's some things I've picked up from home. Uh, let's start with, uh, can you find in my pencil case, I do carry around this, this with me all the time, can you find something that you'd use to get rid of mistakes? Is that okay? Dive in. And then, um, Eva, do you want to have a look at this and tell me what you think's going on with this particular rag? <laughs> Is that okay? Brilliant. And George, what do you think is going on with this? So if you want to hold it up, let's see. Eva, what have you got there? Um, a dirty T-shirt. Do you want to just turn it round and hold it up so that everyone can see it? What do you think it's been used for? Cleaning. Yeah, cleaning. This is my shoe cleaning T-shirt. Now, if you look at that, do you think that's ever going to get white again? No. Even if we use the vanish, what do you think? No. I don't think that's even going to get rid of it, is it? Would you like to wear that? You can take it with you if you want. Is it fashionable? No. No. <laughs> um, George, what have you got there? Uh, an, oil stain, uh, uh, an oil stain cleaner. Yeah. Now, this is actually ink. If you can hold it up. We were at a wedding yesterday. I was uh, leading Anna and Nils's wedding, and you needed, this is very specific, for the marriage registers, you need permanent black ink from a fountain pen. And so that is me trying to make sure the pen was working fine. And uh, as you can see, it's totally blotted everywhere, isn't it? Any way of getting that stuff out, do you think? No. No, it's totally blotted. And George, did you find something that we could use to rub stuff away? An eraser. Yep. And was there something else in there as well that you might use if there was, that's for pencils, isn't it? Where you can rub it clean. Uh, there we go. And that is? Uh, Tipex. Yeah, Tipex. Other brands available, correction fluid. But yeah, you can put that if you're writing on something like this, white paper, can't you, and cover it over. Now, is there any way these things are going to get clean again? What do you say? No. no way. And with Tipex, even if you put that on a white sheet covering some black ink, do you think it does a good job? Uh, mostly, but they'll still be, you'll still be able to know. That's right. You'd still be able to see something, wouldn't you? That's saying, I'm trying to cover something up, but it's noticeable. Guys, thank you so much for coming up and just helping me with those. Thank you very much. Now, when we see stuff like that, it does bring home the description that David's talking about here. This plea for cleansing. Blot out, wash away, cleanse me. Three ways David wants God to work, to, to rub it out of the book. 
Get rid of my mistakes. Don't have them written down, Lord. Blot them out. Take them away. Wash it away. Get the vanished soap on it and really scrub it, Lord. Scrub it clean, please. That dirty T-shirt's never going to get white unless it's bleached by some industrial chemical. And the whiteness that's described here in, in Psalm 51 is, is like fresh, white, virgin snow. It's the sort of remote snow you'd find in an Alaskan forest where no one else has trod. David's cry is to be cleansed. And he uses this image from the Old Testament using hyssop. Now, hyssop was uh, used in the Exodus to, to paint the door frames where the Israelites were living, to paint them with the blood of the lamb so that God's judgment would pass over that household. The Old Testament priests serving in the tab tabernacle would use hyssop and sort of spread it, dip it into the sacrifices, the mix of blood and ash, and then sprinkle the worshiper to, to apply the sacrifice to them, to say visually, Lord, these people are covered now by this offering. Forgive them. But the blood of animals cannot provide eternal forgiveness. It's a shadow of the Savior's blood, Jesus' shed on a cross to bring that deep cleansing. And David yearns for this deep internal cleansing. He knows it's not about just soap on the hands and water. It's not about getting the, the right robes on and looking the part. What does he say in verse 10? Create in me a pure heart. When you see your sin as ugly to you, when the Holy Spirit brings you low and lays heavy on your heart, you thirst for forgiveness. You desire this cleaning. You want it to be once and for all, for all things purified, free of the stain, free of the residue of the sinful thoughts, the desires, the words, the deeds. You'll cherish the truth that the Lord Jesus takes our dirty garments and he clothes us in his righteousness, a pure white robe. Robert Lowry, the American Baptist minister, he wrote the popular hymn in 1875, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. We sing it here at Grace Church every so often. And he deliberately, in the hymn, repeated the title phrase 12 times throughout that song. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 12 times repeated again and again. Why? Because we need to know it. We need to remember that. We need to hunger for the cleansing that only Jesus can bring. And then as we move towards the end, though, that sin confessed, the cleansing called for and received, there's joy restored. The movement of the psalm starts with that cry for mercy, an acknowledgement of sin. See where it finishes. I don't know if you've watched the film Castaway, um, starring Tom Hanks. 
who does a terrific job of portraying the isolation and, and desertion of this chap, uh, Chuck Noland, who experiences four long years on this desert island. And uh, as an audience, we, we become involved in that isolation as well and attached to his companion, Wilson, the, the volleyball. Um, so that when Noland is, is um, escaping from the island and finally getting off it, he's devastated when he loses Wilson at sea. His companion, totally separated, gone, isolated. You see, we're, we're created for companionship. We're created for community. And you hear the agonizing cry of David in verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit away from me. God's presence is so precious to David. More than a volleyball with a hand mark on it. But this presence for David was far from his mind, wasn't it, on that night with Bathsheba? As he signed Uriah's death warrant? Where, where, where was the presence? Where was the hunger? But now, now revived by God's forgiveness, he wants to enjoy his presence. Revived by the cleansing. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. God's presence and his joy are inseparable. To delight in God is to know him with you. To know God is an experience. To be saved means we feel delight in the closest and ultimate friendship that we can have with our creator. That's what we're longing for. That's what we were made for. That is what God wants to give to us. And you see, that leads to praise, the declaring of the wonder of God's righteousness. Verse 14, David is looking outwards. He's thinking in verses 13 to 19 of the temple in Jerusalem. Perhaps he's recalling the joy as he uh, had when the Ark of the Covenant came into the temple. And David is dancing so hard. He's, he's just wearing his ephod, his undergarments, and he's enveloped by God's grace. I love how Di Hankey puts it when he's looking at this psalm, a church planter in Wales. Di writes, the penny drops. His best days do not have to be behind him. It can be like that again. That's what's happening in Psalm 51. As forgiveness is received, as it's experienced, huh, there's more to come. I'm created for joy. Now, a fresh start that is marked by a pure heart, a contrite spirit, rejoicing with this coursing, that joy coursing through his bones, a song of praise where bones were crushed and now healed and becomes a declaration for all people. It changes David. God's forgiveness changes us. This is deep spiritual renewal. We don't have to be imprisoned by guilt. We don't have to play games trying to justify ourselves or covering things up. It's only when we love God above all else that we're free to love our neighbor as ourselves, to, to, to obey the call of the second commandment. You see, David sees people now at the end of the psalm as those to be loved and saved, not playthings for his pleasure. What does he say in verse 13? Then I will teach transgressors your ways, Lord. 
so that sinners will turn back to you. Can you see totally different focus now? He is willing to be used by God as a living sacrifice, a public lesson in God's redeeming grace. Not just for the generation around him and the people there in Jerusalem, but across millennia. So even in Manchester, a city in a country he never even imagined would exist. Here we are learning from him. The Holy Spirit using his words to call weighed down sinners, guilty sinners, to experience the power of God's forgiveness. This man, now once captivated by lust, is filled with love for others. And that prayer of sacrifice in verses 18 to 19 is is that multitudes would worship the Lord, that people would come in to the heavenly city and know the forgiveness and the joy and the satisfaction of worshiping the Lord God. This is ultimately fulfilled as we see Jesus dying and rising on a cross and saying, I'm here for all nations, come to me. Does any of this resonate with you? Does any of this connect with your heart, with your experiences? Maybe you're stuck in a pit of sin, shackled by sinful desires, actions that are crushing you emotionally and physically and cutting you off from God's love. God's presence may seem a million miles away. How can you ever come back to him? Perhaps you're floundering as a joyless Christian. Life and faith, it's just great. You've been at it for several years. It's just what I do. This talk of restoration and joy, of being willing to be a living lesson to other people, (laughs) sounds a bit too full on for me. That's not how it should be. God is the one who forgives. God is the one who restores joy. God, take us to the place of deep brokenness so that we might be recreated and restored in his joy, his righteousness. Is your spirit weak? Does your faith seem fragile? Well, take hold of the truth today. God's grace is bigger than your sin. God's grace is bigger than your sin. Because of Christ's unfailing love, there is fresh mercy for you now, today. So receive it. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is prepared to meet us in our brokenness, in our rebellion, in our sin, the things that we've thought and done and said, the things we've neglected to do, Father. Thank you that you are the God who forgives all iniquity, all sin. And Father, may we not take that privilege for granted. Would your Holy Spirit continue to keep us tender-hearted towards you, to run to you, when we've been convicted of sin, when people have pointed things out in our lives that have hurt and have been wrong, 
that we would go to you and we would know the powerful, unending forgiveness that Christ Jesus has secured and the joy he brings to all who depend on him and trust him for this life. And Father, would you make us a people, a church, that are prepared to own what we have done wrong, to own the forgiveness and enjoy it, and to be joy givers, restored in joy, so that more people would know this life-changing grace. Lord, we pray your will be done. Amen.